is Luke 22:14 through 20. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it, and he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated as you are being seated. Uh, we would at this time uh, dismiss our kids. If you're comfortable sending our kids down the hall, there's programming just for them and Kara and Paul will meet them in the foyer. All right. Good almost afternoon. Okay, that didn't land. Let's uh, go somewhere else. Uh, this morning, we are in the third week of our series, Getting Right with God, and, and Dusty has preached the last two weeks. Uh, first week was on the fall, and the second week, uh, last week, was on covenant. This morning, we're going to talk, as Ian said, about this idea of new covenant, but before we get there, let me begin with an illustration. Uh, many of you know that my wife and I are expecting twins, and uh, when we first found out, I have some family in the room who are, are excited about that, um, when we uh, first found out we were expecting twins, we went through, uh, I'm going to call it the seven stages of joy, okay? Shock, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, testing, and acceptance, all right? Uh, in all reality, we are overjoyed, um, but we went through some of these emotions because we already have an almost two-year-old, and the thought of having three kids the age two years and younger is pretty daunting. It's a little scary. And our little two-year-old, or almost two-year-old, is fiercely independent. She is rambunctiously eager, loves to test all the boundaries all the time, and we knew that this would be a challenge. And so we decided, let's potty train Campbell before the babies come. Now, full disclosure, my wife, who is in this service, I want you to know I've said this every service, has done the lion's share of the work uh, in, in terms of potty training Campbell. She has been a champion both in pregnancy and potty training. And naturally, uh, she has more time to spend with Campbell. She is at home with her during the day. One of the reasons we've been successful in potty training Cam is by using a time-tested, well-known parenting technique. I watched my parents use it. Bailey watched her parents use it. I'm sure parents in the room, you have used it, or children, you've experienced your parents use it. Folks, I'm talking about bribery, Okay. Some of you may call it conditioning according to its psychological categorization, but let's call a spade a spade. We bribed our daughter into going potty in the toilet instead of in her pants. If she went number one in the big potty, she got two M&Ms, or as she calls them, NIMS. If she did number two in the big potty, well, then that warranted her five NIMS. Campbell, while a little apprehensive of the whole process at first, is a very fast 
learner and adapter. She has hit the benchmarks of toddlerhood with great speed. She was walking at nine months. She's been talking since 14 months. She has an already robust vocabulary, which she exercises every single day, nonstop. And so she took to potty training with the same speed and gusto. However, as with all things involving progress, there is some regression. And in the last few weeks, Campbell has, and because I'm in church this morning on stage, I'll call, left some pants presents for us uh, multiple times. We had gotten to the point where no NIMS were needed in this uh, reward equation, but after those mishaps, we reintroduced this if-then equation of big potty equals NIMS. If you do this, then you receive this. Campbell informed Bailey just a few days ago that she needed to go potty, and so they rushed to the restroom in time for Campbell to do her business according to the agreement. And so I overheard Bailey say to Campbell, Kim, you went poop in the big potty. Good job. Do you know what you get? And all of you in the room know what she gets. She knows what she gets. It's five nims, and she sat there for a moment and looked at Bailey and pondered and goes, a puppy. Uh, no, no chance in heaven we get her a puppy with two more babies on the way. But um, these if-then agreements are all over our society and culture and world. If you pay your bills, then you can continue to live without consequence. If you make the good grade, then you'll be able to graduate. If you make the deal, you will earn the commission. If you change your oil, then your engine won't burn up. These little conditional statements of if-then, one could make the argument that they are the foundation for human flourishing. They establish all the safeguards and reward structures that make our world work. God uses these if-then statements to build relationship with his people, and he calls them covenants. Dusty introduced to us the idea of covenant by talking about God's covenant with a man named Abram, or Abraham as he was later known. An understanding of covenant is integral to our ability to understand and navigate the scriptures and see the common thread throughout all of the biblical text. God's desire to be with and to partner with his people bears out in all of the covenants he makes with them. And that rings true in the new covenant as well. That's our subject for today, the new covenant. And we're going to walk through the promises God makes and the partnership he builds with us through Christ. But before we get there, we need to talk about the precedent that God sets. If you're a note taker, here's how we'll outline our time this morning. First, we're going to talk about the precedent. God is a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. Next, we'll talk about the promise. What is this new covenant? What has God promised to us in Jesus? And finally, we'll talk about partnership, this partnership that God invites us into. This idea of covenant is found both in the Hebrew and Greek languages, which are the original languages in which the, the scriptures were written. The Hebrew word berit, everyone say berit. Good job. Everyone say diathike. That's the Greek term. Hebrew is berit, Greek is diathike. Both of these are the word for covenant, and they mean to enter a formal relational partnership to accomplish a goal. As we begin this morning, let's look at Luke twenty two fourteen through 20, the passage that Kelly read earlier. Jesus, while he takes this second cup, says that this is the blood of the new covenant. What is he saying? Covenant is the language God speaks. He is a God of promise. God is the first to make a covenant promise and the most frequent covenant maker. And there are four distinct covenants that I think we need to draw attention to as we talk about the president 
excuse me, the precedent, I'm not going to talk about the precedent, I promise. (laughs) The precedent uh, God has set. So first of all, let's look at God's covenant with Noah. Upon seeing the sinful state of the world, God decided to wipe the earth clean, and he protects Noah and his family. Although it grieved the heart of God, the only way to rid the world of sin was through destruction. So the earth is flooded, and Noah and his sons and their families are preserved as a righteous remnant, in order that God would use them to restart the world. After the flood, God makes a promise to Noah. In Genesis 9-11, he says this, Yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will the floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will the flood destroy the earth. And you'll notice here that this covenant is simply a promise from God. It is not conditional. There is no if. There is only God's then. God's promise to not destroy the earth through a flood. The second covenant we need to look at is God's covenant with Abram, as Dusty preached about last week. God promised Abram that despite his old age, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his seed. It is his lineage that will bless the peoples of the earth. God is eager to use the most unlikely to accomplish his purpose. He makes a covenant with Abram, choosing to partner with one who should not have anything of value to offer, and yet God does it anyway. Dusty did a wonderful job illustrating the trustworthiness of God who promises and partners with people. And I need to briefly remind you of the covenantal norms of the day as we talked about last week. There are three things that we just need fresh in our mind as we approach new covenant. The first is this, that the greater of the two parties establish the conditions of the covenant. The second these conditions specified the rewards of the con- if the contract was kept and the punishment if it was broken. And third, the covenant was ratified by a blood sacrifice, showing how serious it was if the two parties were to take it. They would walk together between these bisected carcasses as a pledge of loyalty to the contract that they had just made. The covenant forged with Abraham is the driving narrative of the biblical text. God's blessing of the whole world through the line of Abraham. The third covenant we need to look at is God's covenant with Moses. After the Exodus, God leads his servant up onto Mount Sinai and gives instruction for his people. We know this instruction to be the Ten Commandments. They're the foundation of the law that would serve as the boundaries for blessing upon God's people, the Israelites. In Exodus 19, 4-6, Yahweh says to Moses, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, then you will be my one special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give the people of Israel. This covenant was intended to protect Israel from themselves and from the falsehood that would likely make its way into their presence as a people through pagan religions and idols and various behaviors that would disrupt their peace and bring them pain. Israel, as we know, would fail time and time again to keep their covenant promise to Yahweh. And they would suffer the consequence of their action, but Yahweh remained faithful. He continued to liberate, to lead, and to love Israel. 
Now, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with Israel, is the one that we will extrapolate today as we talk about new covenant. But there's one more Old Testament covenant I want us to have present on our minds. It is God's covenant with David. The promise of Yahweh to King David was that someone from his line would sit on the throne of Israel forever. And in 2 Samuel 7.16, the Lord spoke to David through the prophet Nathan saying this, Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. We know that upon the death of, David's, uh, of David, his son Solomon would take the throne. And Solomon would make many mistakes that eventually would lead to the kingdom being divided. There was the separation of Israel and Judah in a period known as the kings. And yet God continues to maintain his faithfulness. In all of these covenants, we find these conditional statements, these if-then statements. And God promises to bring the blessing of covenant fulfillment so long as the commitment is met in the lesser partner. But in each of these human partners, there is a failure to live up to their end of the bargain. The prophet Jeremiah tells us of a greater day and a better covenant God will make with his people. In Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, he writes this, But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And I will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord for everyone from the least to the greatest, will know me already. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. God is a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. It's the language that He speaks with His people. And there is this constant refrain throughout Scripture using this word, remember. I just want to read to you some of these remember statements from God to His people Israel. Remember this day, I the Lord brought you up out of Egypt. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember all the commands the Lord your God gave to you. Remember how you aroused the anger of the Lord with the golden calf. Remember the days of old and the generations long past. Remember His wonderful deeds. Remember His covenant forever. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember His wonders and miracles. Remember what I have told you. All of this pointing to our God who is faithful despite the constant failure of his human partners. No failure can prohibit God's faithfulness. He invites us to remember his faithfulness over and over again. This is the precedent that God has set with covenant. Now let's look at the promise. What is this promise that God makes? This new covenant first finds its footing in the words of Jesus, but then the other New Testament writers will elaborate on this idea. And how it differs from the old covenant. That is God's covenant with Moses and Israel, the covenant of the law. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 21 to 30 this morning. You can also access that on our YouVersion digital bulletin or the text will be on the screens. Here's what Paul says starting in Romans 3 verse 21. But now... God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised long ago in the writings of Moses and the prophets. We need to stop right there for a second. Without using the words new covenant, Paul is explaining that the old covenant, specifically the covenant with Moses, which bound people to the law in this conditional if-then promise, is now no longer the means through which we achieve 
right standing with God. Believe it or not, I've been a pastor for almost nine years. I know, that's shocking to you. In fact, I'm helping uh, coach basketball at the high school this year. When I went into the first day of summer workouts, some of the boys thought that I was a new student who was coming to join the team. Now listen, I, I would lie six ways to Sunday to make something like that happen. I would take full advantage, but I am not a high school student. Uh, despite my youthful looks, I've been in located ministry either part-time or full-time for over a decade now, and I've been around a lot of messy people because we're all messy. And if I had a dollar for every time I heard a person say, I just need to get myself right with God, man, I would be rich. This simple phrase, it seems humble, it seems natural, and it seems penitent, but in all reality, it is one of the most backwards prideful and arrogant statements a person could make. Why? Because it assumes that we have within our own power and ability this opportunity to set ourselves right with God. And friends, this is antithetical to the gospel. There is no getting ourselves right. There is only God making us right through Jesus Christ. You'll notice in the text that Paul says there is another way as opposed to keeping the requirements of the law. But who has kept the requirements of the law? Was it Abraham? who, First of all, the law didn't even exist, but who lied about his wife being his sister and gave her to another man? Was it Moses who killed a man in Egypt, who doubted God to his face, who took his staff and struck a rock against the instruction of God and in his pride disobeyed him? Was it David who in his lust took Bathsheba to be his own wife and sent her husband off to battle to be killed? Did any of them keep the righteous requirements of the law? As Paul writes in verse 10 of Romans 3, he's quoting David in Psalm 14 where he says, No one is righteous. No, not one. You see, the law was not able to save because no one could follow it perfectly. And yet, God remains faithful. Typically, this statement, I just need to get myself right with God, is coming from a place of pain, a life of hurt, regret, turmoil, struggle, abuse, neglect, and sin. It is an honest desire, but an incorrect approach. Paul says in our text, Romans 3, 22 and 23, he writes this, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. Getting right with God is not something that we accomplish. It is something that we accept. The statement should go like this. I need Christ so that God can get me right with Him. It is all His power, all His faithfulness, all His ability to make us right through Christ. I was thinking about how I might illustrate this point, and I thought about a man named J.R. Smith. Anyone ever heard of J.R. Smith before? All right, fun. I get to introduce you guys to J.R. Smith. We have a, a picture. This is, uh, most of you know who this is. This is LeBron James, who I have already been on the record this morning, uh, emphatically the second best player of all time. Uh, Michael Jordan will always be the best player of all time. And right next to him is, is his teammate, J.R. Smith. Now, I was like, how can I introduce J.R. Smith to you guys, those of you who aren't NBA fanatics like I am? And, and one word came to mind as to how I might describe him, and in the most 
uh, Christian and loving way I can describe him, J.R. Smith is an idiot. Okay? Let me explain why. J.R. Smith has been a teammate of LeBron for quite some time. In fact, before LeBron went to the Lakers, J.R. Smith was his teammate on the Cleveland Cavaliers. And the Cavaliers played in the NBA Finals in 2018 against the Golden State Warriors. And there was a moment in Game 1 of that final series in which uh, the Cavaliers were down by one point. And LeBron and J.R. Smith's teammate, George Hill, was fouled with just under five seconds to go. He would go to the line to shoot two free throws, down by one point. They had an opportunity to win the game. George Hill steps up to the line. He makes the first free throw, and the game is tied. And J.R. Smith is standing there along the lane, ready to block out should his teammate miss. And in fact, George Hill takes his next shot. The ball rims out, and it lands right in J.R. Smith's lap. Now, with five seconds to go, about two feet from the basket, your team is tied. There is no better opportunity to win the game. Jared Smith literally could have just jumped and put the ball in the basket. He could have passed it out to one of his wide-open teammates around the three-point line. And do you know what J.R. Smith does in this moment? He grabs the ball and he dribbles as far away from the basket as he can because he thinks his team is ahead. And his teammates are standing around like, what are you doing? J.R. Smith is an idiot. And LeBron, even though he scored 51 points that game, would lose to the Golden State Warriors in overtime in the finals and ultimately lose the series. J.R. Smith is an idiot. LeBron would go to the Lakers a few years ago, uh, went to that team, and, and many of you know that the Lakers just won uh, an NBA title. They are the champions of the NBA, much to my chagrin, and J.R. Smith uh, joined LeBron on the Lakers after being cut by the Cleveland Cavaliers. Now, can I, anyone know what role J.R. Smith played in winning an NBA title? Yeah, none at all. Uh, after several airballed threes and terrible uh, performances in various playoff games, he rode the bench and he rode LeBron's coattails to a title. J.R. Smith didn't do a single thing. And he has a championship ring. Listen, friends, the reason I can stand up here and say that that J.R. Smith is an idiot is because I am too. And in all Christian love, so are you. Because when presented with the opportunity to do something that would be good for us and good for our team and to have success, to make our own way to make it right, you know what we did? We dribbled as far away from the basket as possible. And you know what that's called? It's called sin. Friends, you and I didn't do a thing. We're as idiots, as idiotic as J.R. Smith is. And yet we have salvation because of what Jesus did. We are placing our faith in Jesus. This is the new covenant. In fulfillment of the covenant with Noah, God saves the world to Jesus by destroying him and the sin he took to the cross rather than destroying the world. In fulfillment of Abraham's covenant, Jesus is the seed as an Israelite, as a Hebrew, the seed of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In fulfillment of God's covenant with Moses and his people, Israel, Jesus is the perfect human who did not sin and maintained perfect accordance with the law, keeping its decrees. He lived a sinless and spotless life, proving himself to be the faithful Israelite who could live above God's standards. 
In fulfillment of David's covenant, Jesus is the king from the line of David who will reign on the throne forever. Not an earthly kingdom that is subject to upheaval, rebellion, and siege, but the kingdom of heaven, which at this very moment is making its way to earth. It is borderless, it is boundless, it is irreversible, and Jesus' reign will never end. He is enthroned forever over all things in heaven on earth. Jesus is the guarantee of a new and better covenant with God. It is His ability to live a faithful life that secures God's faithful love for us forever. Paul says that we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus and that this promise is true for anyone. No special lineage or heritage is necessary. No former knowledge of God. In fact, listen, the only prerequisite to receive this promise is faith in Jesus. Friends, if you hear nothing else this morning, this is the entire sermon in a sentence. The only prerequisite to receive this promise is faith in Jesus. Friends, the invitation is to have faith in a God who has only ever been faithful. Time after time, each covenant fractured by the human it was made with, and still on the other side is a God who never fails to follow through. There is no one in this room or in this world who is more in need of God's covenantal love and rescue than anyone else. Paul says all of us have fallen short of God's glorious standard. None of us have lived life above the line. Continuing in our text in verses 24 and 25 of Romans 3, Paul writes this, recapping 23, yet God freely and graciously declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. There it is, plain and simple, once again, we are made right. We do not make ourselves right. This verb in the Greek is dikaiomenoi. I'm not going to make you say this one. Its English definition is the word justified. In fact, some of your translations probably use the word justified. We are justified freely by his grace. And dikaiomenoi means these things, to be proved right, to be acquitted, to be considered righteous, to be acknowledged as right. And there are two things that are fascinating about Paul's use of this Greek verb, dikaiomenoi, here. For those of you who are grammar geeks in the room, here we go. Number one, it is in the passive voice. It is in the passive voice, meaning this, salvation is received, not achieved. Number two, it is in the present tense. God's justification of us happened on the cross once for all time, but it is also happening all the time. Because we have a righteous high priest who constantly is interceding on our behalf. I love how John Weiss puts it in his book, Jesus Prom, where he writes, when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees his son. Coincidentally, that also functions as an incredibly difficult tongue twister. This is God's doing. It's the fulfillment of his covenant promise to you. And we began this morning talking about this if-then idea. And friends, the only if to have God's then is faith. Absolute, complete, obedient trust in Jesus who lived the life you needed died the death you deserve, and rose to live the life that we all long for. 
Look at the end of this passage with me. In, in verse 26, he writes this, God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. 28, he writes, so we are made right with God through faith, not by obeying the law. This is the new covenant, not bound by the Mosaic law, but bought by the love of Christ. Moses, who went to the mountain to meet God, Jesus, who went to the mountain only to watch God leave his side. We trust fully and completely in the saving work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus, who does not nullify the law, but satisfies its requirements on our behalf. In verse 30, Paul concludes his thinking this way, there is only one God, and he makes people right with himself only by faith whether they are Jews or Gentiles. That's the promise. God is a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. The precedent has been set. God promises us through Jesus that we are freed forever from sin. And then, because this is what covenant is, invites us into this partnership with him. Hebrews 9, 13 through 15, the author writes this, under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised for them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of sins they had committed under the first covenant. As we close, as we think about what it means to step into the partnership with God, let me remind us of four things that this new covenant accomplishes for us. Number one, atonement. Jesus is the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb sacrificed on our behalf. No longer is the sacrifice of animals necessary to remove our sin. Jesus has taken all of it for all time upon himself to the cross to die forever. Jesus secures our salvation and right standing with God. He provides a perfect sacrifice which doesn't need to be revisited, amended, or altered. It stands forever. Though our sins are as scarlet, he has washed us white as snow. Our justification is both once for all time and happening all the time. And as Mark Moore says in our reading this week, he writes this, the blood of Jesus flows both ways, across our past and toward our future. We have atonement. The second thing we have is access. In the past, a mediator was necessary. In this system that God established for Israel, a priest was required to intercede on behalf of the people. And the high priest was only able to go into what was known as the most holy place once per year as a representation of the people before the presence of God. But now God is known personally because the sin that prohibited God's presence from being among his people has been satisfied. Matthew 27, 50-51, at the moment that Jesus gives up his last breath, the author writes this, Then Jesus shouted again, and he released his spirit, and at that moment the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
This barrier that had existed before in order to keep the presence of God holy was now released among the people. And we can now, as the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 4, approach the throne of grace with confidence. We have atonement. We have access. Number three, we have acceptance. We now belong to one family. It is God's family. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. There are no more distinctions between people at all. If you are in Christ, you belong to the family of God. And as John in his gospel, right in the first chapter, writes in John 1.12, he says this, But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. This acceptance is an assurance and inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ, as Paul writes in Romans 8. This new covenant secures for us a spot in God's family forever. And those who are in the family of God receive all the rights and privileges that come with belonging to him. We have atonement, we have access, we have acceptance. Finally, we have activity. Because God has made a covenant with us that is a relational partnership to accomplish a goal. We are to share in the activity of God. You'll remember a covenant is a partnership. That goal is the salvation of all, the peop- of all people. But people cannot know God unless His glorious salvation is shared with them. We are sent out on mission in the name of Jesus to make disciples. This partnership is not about our personal success. God has already guaranteed his promise to us through Christ and sealed that promise within us with the Holy Spirit. Listen to Jesus in Acts 1 verse 8. He says this, You will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. Friends, the mission hasn't changed. It's to tell people good news. Is there anything better than having good news to tell someone else? The partnership that Jesus ushered in with the new covenant hasn't changed. For more than 2,000 years now, it is a simple and profound purpose for the redeemed people of God to tell people about Jesus. To invite them to live in the hope and security and freedom of the new covenant, not the tired, repetitious way of sin and failure and guilt and remorse with no hope. The covenant is not about God demanding something from us. It is about what He wants to do with us. You see, God saved us to send us. The promise of this new covenant is to assure us of His desire to partner with us. Just like he partnered with Abraham and Moses and David, his desire is to work with us. Unshackled from sin, unburdened from worry, released from all our trying to prove ourselves righteous, we simply get to partner with Jesus because God's promise to deal with everything else on the cross is guaranteed. He has never failed. He fulfills all of his promises, including now. The precedent has been set, the promise has been made, and the invitation to partner with him exists today. And friends, the only prerequisite to receive this promise of God is faith in Jesus. Not even our failure can derail God's faithfulness. So let's end this morning where we began, at the table with Jesus in Luke 22, the scripture that Kelly read earlier. This is what it says. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it and said, take this and share it among yourselves for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to to remember me. 
After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. And I'm wondering, from last week, if you remember in Genesis 15, verse 8, when Abram receives this promise from God and he asks this simple question where he just says this, God, how can I be sure? How can I have confidence that what you say will be so? And God responds by telling him to bring him some animals. A heifer, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon, each three years old. These animals were cut in two and the pieces placed side by side. And the presence of God passes through the pieces as a way to show Abram that God's covenant promise will be so. This is how he can be sure. And friends, here at this moment around the table in Luke 22, on the night Jesus was arrested, his ministry is in its third year. He takes the bread and calls it his own body. Tearing it in pieces, he gives them to his disciples and he takes the cup, the second cup, not the cup of the Passover, the cup that is a brand new covenant for God and his people. Jesus in this moment assures them of a new and better covenant agreement. The blood of animals secured the covenants in the past, but the blood of Jesus secures the new covenant today. Jesus is the sacrifice, the animal torn in two on the cross. Jesus is God, able to provide what he promises us when he offers us a new covenant. Jesus is man, able to accept the covenant terms on our behalf and live the committed life. And Jesus' blood is the guarantee of our salvation. On the cross, Jesus is both satisfying all the terms of the old covenant that we could never keep. And he's establishing the terms of a new covenant that we get to live in forever. Jesus around the table invites us to remember. And he teaches us to forget. We remember his sacrifice, his faithfulness, and his unfailing love. And we forget our sin. Because, just as the prophet Jeremiah has said, God has done as well. Never again will I remember the sins of my people. So friend, in the room today, who has yet to receive Jesus, who has done this dance with God for some time, and who is so tired of trying, who today has heard the message of the gospel, that it is only through faith that you can be made right with God, my invitation to you is his. Come and partner with him. Come join him by responding in repentance and then joining him in the waters of baptism to forever seal this covenant promise God desires to make with you. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus, today is the day. Now is the time to respond and to receive this gift of salvation. Friends in the room who have known Jesus a long time, we're going to approach the table together. Those of you who have said, I'm placing my faith in Jesus and have joined him in the waters of baptism. We partake of the cup of the new covenant each and every week because we need to remember that it's only Jesus. So in the next few moments, be reminded of your atonement, the access that you now have, the acceptance into God's family, and the activity that he's invited you to partner with him in. Remember him today. His covenant love his faithfulness despite all of your failure, and remember that the only prerequisite to receive this promise is faith. Let's pray. Father God, it is through Jesus 
that you have promised us better and new. He is the mediator of a better covenant, a relational partnership, God, that you have invited us into. And God, no longer can the shackles of our sin hold us back. You've invited us into freedom forever. God, we have atonement and access and acceptance and God, we have activity to do. You've invited us into this partnership. Would you help us to remember well the faithful covenantal love that you have displayed for us through the cross. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.